Happy Sunday. Good to see you. It's okay to wave. <laughs> hey, everyone. Uh, I hope everyone's staying healthy and safe. I, I hear that the flu is going around and is bad. And so for those um, that have been sick or maybe some folks online you weren't able to come through because you're not feeling well, we, we're praying for you guys and we hope everyone will be healthy and safe. Um, well, uh, before we begin our sermon, I have a quick announcement about our church is that we've been talking about chartering, chartering for quite some time. Um, and we were actually, New Life was part of a larger Korean church and part of, uh, we were the English ministry of a larger, much uh immigrant church, but the Lord has been guiding us in this journey of going independent, and um, yeah, this is this is something that's been in the works for a long time, but it's finally here where God is birthing a new church, and so um, we are having a special uh, chartering worship service on December 18th uh, at 11.30, and so if you come out to church um, at 9.30, we will have service here, but if you come at 11.30 like you are doing now, on this date, we will actually be meeting across uh, the parking lot a few blocks up at the larger Korean church, and we're going to have just a joint worship with the Korean community and just celebrating uh, the birthing of a new church, and so uh, what does this mean for our church? We're actually not going to be doing anything different. We're continuing to do what we've always done. But we did want to have this celebration because it kind of marks the next chapter of new life. And if you call this place home, I invite you to come out on this day uh, to just celebrate what God is doing and to hear his vision for our community and to be blessed by um, our parent church as well. And so that will be on December 18th. If you have questions, by the way, about chartering, uh, we've been sending out newsletters. And if you're not subscribed to that, please do go to seattlenewlife.org. There should be a button that says subscribe to newsletter, and then you'll be up to date. Um, but we will be filling you in on what's going on. All right. Well, with that said, we're kind of closing in on our Nehemiah series. I believe next week might be the last week where we uh, will finish up this book and jump into the Advent. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we are going to be talking about Nehemiah chapter 9. I want to say, though, what I'm talking about today is actually part two of what Pastor Eric shared last week. And so if you missed last week's sermon, please go back to the website YouTube to listen to the sermon as it will help you to better understand understand what's going on in today's context. And so Nehemiah 9, which we're talking about, is part of a larger narrative together with Nehemiah 8, 9, 10 being grouped together as it talks about worship and people's response when they experience God in genuine worship. Um, to sum up, uh, we, Pastor Eric shared last week that worship, uh, what, what makes a Christian? What is a question? He asked a simple question. He said, the answer is very simple. A Christian is a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Then what does a Christian look like? Well, Christian should be filled with joy. All right, so that was last week, part one. So if we worship Jesus and we're filled with his joy, what happens to Christians? Well, today we want to talk about that, is that uh, God's goodness, his joy, when it's really set inside us, it should lead to a life of repentance and transformation. So I want to read from Nehemiah chapter 9. It's quite lengthy, but if you guys can stand with me, we're going to read this together. Um, portions of it, I'll jump around. Uh, so let's look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 
Well, I'll tell you the verses as we read. All right, let's go. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for the quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confessions and worshiped the Lord their God. Verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and has committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for the thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem to you that has come upon us, uh, seem little to you that the hardship that's come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all the people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have de they dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in, your, in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy his fruit and his good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. These words of truth. These words of power. These words that transform even the most callous of all hearts. Lord, we just give you our hearts this morning, this afternoon. And Lord, if there's any callousness, hardening that we have, God, I pray that your word would just melt our hearts. Make it soft, malleable, so that it can be... Um, formed in a way that is true in a way that glorifies you i pray O oh lord at this time as i speak your word use me as your vessel god that everything that i say that you would sanctify clear make clear and so that only what you want to share with your church your beloved lord that would be spoken we thank you so much for this time and we worship you in jesus name amen you may have your seats 
Have you ever experienced something so utterly amazing that it just wrecked you? It just destroyed you. This week, uh, I was following a video post posted by my friend, Phil Bryan. He was actually a pastor at this church many, many years ago. And on Facebook, he was making this vlog, and I was just like, I couldn't stop watching it. Because he was talking about his experience going to New York for the first time. He talked about his trip to New York and how on the very last day, his friend recommended that they eat at this bagel shop. And she's like, it's a good bagel. You should try it. And so he went to see this bagel shop, and he saw that the line was wrapped around the building. It was going to take an hour for him to get a bagel. And he thought, he was like, there's no bagel in this world that's worth an hour of a wait. How good could this bagel be? But he said he just kind of braved it. That's what you do when you're in New York. You brave through things. And he waited and got his bagel. And he said he took a bite of that bagel. And he was just completely blown away. And this is what he said in the video. He's like, he said, it's like I've never tasted bagels before. What is this? Or everything that I've tasted that I thought was bagels were cheap imitations of the real thing. He said it was chewy and soft and wonderful. And then after he described this bagel, he said he devoured it. And he was like, he was filled with grief, sadness. He's like, I have to go back to Texas. I can't, I can't just go back to eating a bagel now. What am I going to do? I can't eat a bagel. A bagel? He's like, it's just a bagel. A bagel had transformed his understanding of what a bagel could be. But, you know, this is a funny story. He's a really good storyteller. Did it better himself. But I share this because I think this is something that we've all experienced before. Maybe for some of us, it was that New York bagel that you waited and you're like, oh, my goodness. You guys don't know bagels until you try this. Maybe for some of us, it was a Michelin dining experience that you're like, oh, my goodness. How can I cook? How can I just eat whatever? Right? That just blew you away. Maybe for some of us, it was just seeing the most beautiful sunrise on top of the mountains. I've seen you guys post things on your Insta. You're like, this is so beautiful. How can I go back home after I see this? Or for others, maybe it was like the most awesome concert. Remember when concerts used to be a thing? And you're like, you hear beautiful music by your favorite artist and just blows you away and you're just like oh my gosh I'm entranced and you come back to church like oh why can't they be more like but any kind of experience that's so good and you're just filled with joy but you there is this experience that you experience joy and you come back and you're like oh man how do I go back to the way I was you can't you can't you're changed you're transformed by that experience and I think what Nehemiah is talking about here in chapter 9 is just that you see, when people experience God, the true God of the Bible, the one that is so wonderful, so good, you can't go back to the way you were. When you see God, there's something about his glory, his goodness, his love that just humbles his people. We see that happening in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is, is a man. He's a prophet. He wrote like all of that. And this is what he says about God when he, when he experiences a vision from God. He said, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He just falls flat on his face. He's like, God, get away from me. I'm unholy. 
And I think this is what naturally happens when we encounter God, the living God, the God of the Bible, the God of love, the God of truth, the God of justice. We can't help but to fall on our knees and just worship in awe and just mourn. Repentance just comes naturally. Here in Nehemiah 9, we see what, how faith is supposed to work. Faith is supposed to work by us experiencing God and seeing his goodness. And out of that goodness of seeing God, we repent. We change our behavior, our ways. But it's funny because I think for many of us, and even for myself today, I will share my story. We can grow up in the church and get that order mixed up. That we somehow think that we need to first come to church by repenting, to change our behavior. That we have all these things, a list of things that we do and don't do. And we feel shame, guilty, and we think, man, I have this baggage. I need to repent so I could be right before God. And we approach our spirituality in that way. And today, Nehemiah says, no, that's not how faith works. Which leads me to my first point, that faith, our belief, it needs to start with God, knowing the true God, knowing the true God. Nehemiah 9 highlights who God is. It's actually a prayer of the people who talk about who God is. And one of the key features that happens over and over again in this text is that they highlight how God is sovereign. He is in control. He's Lord over everything. Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in them, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Here, they begin by acknowledging who God is and who is God. Who is the God of the Bible? It says he is a God. There's only one God, and he is the God of the universe. He watches everything out in the universe and even on this earth. He is God and he is king and he is Lord. And I love what he says here is that God preserves them all is what it says. Preserves. What does that word mean? Preserves. It means that God keeps alive. He sustains everything. I want us to think about that. Everything. I have a hard time preserving and sustaining my two boys. It's really hard. My husband went on a, a business trip. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so I'm struggling here. But God, our God, sustains everything, everything in the heavens, in the earth, things we don't even know about. God is sustaining it right now, keeping things in order, keeping things from falling apart. This is what it means to say, I believe in God, that God is sovereign. But do we really believe that, church? Do we really believe that God is sovereign, that he really is in control? Do we operate in that way? Do we believe that God is the captain who steers the ship and he has the right to dock that ship anywhere he pleases? To say God is sovereign is, is to say, God, you are in control and you have the right to do anything and everything that you want to. It's a really hard statement to say God is sovereign. But that's what it means to say, God, you are sovereign. That God is in control. Do we really believe that? 
Do you believe that God is in control of your life, everything around you? Especially in moments when things around you seem out of control. Is God sovereign in your life when a loved one is sick? Is God sovereign in your life when you're struggling in your relationships or your relationship is broken? Is God still sovereign in your life when your work is just so hard? Or maybe some of us lost a job. Is God still sovereign in that moment? Maybe some of us struggle to believe, is God sovereign in my life as I struggle with singleness or trying to be pregnant in those times when it's so hard? God, are you sovereign? Are you in control? Are you still good? Like the Bible says, do we believe that? Okay, maybe some of us do and say, okay, God, you're in control of my life. Yes, you reign. But then I ask you, do we believe that God is sovereign not only over you, but the people around you? As parents, do we believe that God is sovereign over our children? That God is Lord, not you. And he has the authority to do anything he wants to with our kids. That's what it means to say, God. That's a scary thought. But that's what it means to say, God, you are sovereign. You're not only Lord over me, but you're Lord over my kids. You're Lord over my coworkers. You're Lord over my neighbors. You're Lord over all. Do we believe that? Do we relinquish control and say, God, you're in charge here? Or are there parts of us that tries to claim sovereignty in different areas where we actually have no business being in control? Because today's scripture says when we believe in God, we have to believe in his sovereignty and let him be God. Secondly, another point that is mentioned here in this text is that the people of Israel say God is faithful over and over again in this story, right? He says in verse 7 to 8, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites. You have kept your promise. For you are righteous. If you're taking notes, just underline that. Really bold. You have kept your promise. For you are righteous. Scripture tells us that God chose Abraham before he did anything good to prove that he deserved to be chosen. Which is so countercultural to how things work in our life, right? Because how do we get picked? How do we get chosen? Think about how you get into college or how you get in your job. You have to submit a resume. Actually, for some of us, maybe you're so elite that they, you get recruited. But that's really rare. That's really rare. Generally, how do you get picked? It's like you're the best of what you do. You have to submit a resume and say, this is what I do. This is what I know. Ask, ask the people around. I could do that. And then the company goes, okay, I want you. But here in, the, in, in Scripture, we hear that's actually not how Abraham was chosen. In fact, he was a nobody. He didn't even worship God because he came from a background that worshipped many gods. He probably had many pagan uh, gods that he followed. And yet God still chose Abraham, who was a nobody. And he says, I want to make you into a somebody. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I'll give you children. And I'll give the promised land to your children and the children of those children. God makes this promise to Abraham. So before Abraham does anything good, Scripture says God chose him, 
He loved him. He provided everything he needed. And he continued to be faithful to him. And not only to Abraham, but the Bible says God was faithful to Abraham and all of his offspring. This is why God's faithfulness was not only passed on to him, but to Moses and all the people. And to King David and all the kings that fall. All of scripture, all of the Old Testament is ways of God being faithful to the promise that he's given to his beloved. And Galatians 3, 28 to 29 says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave or free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then Abraham's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to that promise. Paul is saying here that the same promise that was given to Abraham, the blessing, the chosenness of Abraham, is now passed on to us. Today, the promise of blessing is ours today. Why? Because of what Jesus did. Through Jesus, we have access to God's promises. And he is faithful to us. He is faithful to us. This means that the same God, the same God that split the Red Sea is your God. This means the same God who provided manna and quail and water in the wilderness to grumbling people. That's your God, and he will provide for you. He is faithful. Not only he was faithful back then, but he's faithful to you right now. And he will be faithful to you for all of eternity, as long as he is your God. Okay, I get that. Pastor Claire, I, I believe God is faithful. God is faithful. But let me ask you this then. Do you believe that God is faithful even when we sin and disobey? What if we're faithless? Is God still faithful? Is God still loving? What do you think? Well, let's see where the Bible, what the Bible says. Verse 18, it says, Even when they had made, they meaning Israelites, made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of cloud by fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. Verse 20 you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. I want you to underline this, verse 21. Forty years you sustained them. Forty years in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Well, it sounds to me that God was faithful, even when people are faithless. I mean, they made a golden calf and worshipped this golden calf. But here in scripture, it says that even though they did that, God did not leave them. He still fed them. He poured into them. He gave them clothes. So different, isn't it? Lately, my kids have been very disobedient. I, I find myself like, hey, if you do this, I'm going to take away that. If you do this, no screen time. No dessert if you don't... Oftentimes, we think God operates that way. I, sh I know I shouldn't talk to Michael, but you can't help it sometimes. <laughs> but that's not our God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He sustains them. He's faithful. 
Why? He says he's going to be faithful and he will be faithful. That's his nature, his character. He can't change. Romans 5 Verses 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's faithfulness is not dependent on us and our faith in who we are, our goodness. We didn't deserve Jesus. We didn't earn Jesus. This is why it's called grace. It's a gift from a God who wanted to reconcile the world to us. He gave Jesus as a gift, not because we deserved it, but he gave Jesus because he's faithful. And he says, I'm going to bless you. So my question to us today is, do you really believe that? Do you believe, genuinely believe in your heart, that God is faithful and he's loving even when we stray from his path. Because I asked this question because for me, I grew up in the church hearing this, but it took me a long time to actually believe it, to really know it. Here's what I mean. I'll share a little bit of my testimony. Uh, I grew up in the church and accepted Christ around middle school. But for me, growing up at church, it wasn't really hard to follow directions. I was always the rule follower. I was the firstborn, <laughs> like to follow rules. And it wasn't, I rarely broke them, at least without my parents knowing. I would break rules behind their backs. But generally, I, I do well following rules. And I grew up that way. So after I accepted Christ, I did a lot of things in the church. I was busy. I was always at every youth retreat. I was on the praise band. I would volunteer in college as a, a counselor for the youth kids. I served in Sunday school every Sunday. So I, I, was, I was a very churchy <laughs> person. I grew up that way. Had this appearance of godliness or I'm going to put it in quote, godliness. Did all the church stuff. In fact, I was that kid when my friends would just go out. <laughs> they would just say, hey, I'm hanging to their parents. They'll say, I'm hanging out with Clara. Because their parents were like, oh, okay, okay, we trust. If she's going to be there, we trust you. I was that kid. I'm super boring, right? But that's how I grew up. And I thought, oh, this is what it means to be a Christian. But it wasn't until after college, right before entering to seminary, actually, uh, that I got in a relationship with someone that had broken all my rules. I'm going to say my rules. All my rules of what I thought a good Christian relationship should look like. I had rules. I thought it should look this way. But this person that I was attracted to, I was, I was like, okay. But he broke all of those rules. And he, he was older he came with a lot of baggage. He didn't know Jesus, or he didn't even want to know Jesus, and he was non-committal. So I was dating this guy that broke all my rules of what a Christian relationship would be, and I remember feeling like I couldn't tell anybody that I was dating this guy, and I didn't, except for a few of my small group girls, and they were friends, but no one in the church knew I was dating because I felt really ashamed. I felt like I shouldn't be in this relationship or I shouldn't like this guy. And so I hid it from them. 
But meanwhile, while this was going on, I felt like my heart was just really divided. And I felt guilt and shame. Like I was living two different lives. One at church and one outside of the church. And I didn't know what to do with that feeling of guilt and shame. So what do you do? That's <laughs> question. Come to morning prayer. You come to church. Sit in the front row at church. Come on time. Go to more retreats. Go to a prayer conference. Do godly things. Be where God is. You need more of God. So I, I did that. I tried, to do, I tried to cover my brokenness by doing more, quote, unquote, godly activities. But none of it was helping. Finally, I started to feel in my heart, maybe I just need to break up with this guy. This is what God wants. I need to please God. That's how I operate. I need to please God. I need to break up with him. But I didn't want to break up with him. But I, it was getting to the point where I was so broken. I was like, oh, I'll try anything. And I broke up with the guy thinking, man, if I do this, God's going to accept me back. He's going to love me. My broken relation, the shame and guilt I feel is going to be no more. But you know what happened when I broke up with this guy? Nothing. I still struggled with shame and guilt. I still felt broken. But on top of that brokenness, I now felt anger, <laughs> bitterness towards God for his silence. I felt like God was so distant from me. And I remember being in that season and thinking, God, and my, this was my prayer, God, what more do you want from me? What more should I give up to please you? What more do you want me to do? And I was filled with bitterness, so broken, and there was a part of my life that thought, you know, maybe I just can't do this Christian thing because it's too hard. Maybe I can't be a follower of Jesus because I'm getting it all wrong. And I contemplated whether I should walk away from the church because it was too hard. But that thought of living without God just scared me. <laughs> it scared me. I was like, I don't know if I can live without God. Okay, <laughs> that's not a good plan. What do I do? I went to go find my mentor. I don't know what I was going to get. <laughs> I went to my mentor, and I just opened up. I shared my life. I shared my brokenness. I shared my pain. And I shared how angry I was. In that moment, I was sure that this mentor of mine, she's like my mom, <laughs> would say, hey, Why'd you date this guy? Hey, that was the right thing. You shouldn't be in this room. I thought she was going to give me advice of what I should and I shouldn't have done. That's what I expected. And I thought maybe that would help me. But you know what? As I met with her, that's not what happened. She just let me share. She met with me. She let me share. She prayed for me. She let me share. And one day, she said to me, she said, Clara, do you know that God loves you? He loves you. God will never leave you. He hasn't left you, even now. Even if you choose to be with that guy, he will still love you. He's not going to leave you. Because the way that God sees you right now, you're his child. 
There's nothing more that you can do or nothing less you can do to make him love you more than he already does. He loves you completely, fully. He sent his son Jesus for you. So in this moment, God loves you. You're his child. She spoke the gospel to me. This was the gospel. My mentor started to tell me about who God was. And he was and how he was so faithful, how he was so good. And it just wrecked me in a good way. It's like I have gone to church all these years, gone to every single retreat. I was teaching kids. I went on mission trips telling about Jesus. Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells you so. Jesus died for your sins, but somehow... I was teaching everybody else and not believing that truth for myself. I had not known this God, the God of love, the God of forgiveness, God of grace. That day when my mentor spoke the gospel into my life, it broke my legalism. Legalism is when you think God loves you because... You, the, you do this and not that. Legalism is when you think you deserve to be loved because you obey. Legalism says God does not love you if you do that and stray away when you disobey. Legalism crushes our relationship with God. And it makes us into a slave, working for something forever that we can never earn or gain. The gospel breaks legalism. This is what the gospel, the Bible said, God so loved the world that he gave his son. God loves you that he gave you Jesus. Gospel means that God chose us, loves us, paid for our sins, not because of what we've done, but because he's faithful and he's good. The gospel says love is a gift. Commentator Mark Thronvit says this to describe the gospel in God's grace. Though major movements in theological thought have tended to place their recognition of sin and a subsequent confession prior to forgiveness, other positions, most notably Augustine and Luther, have emphasized the inability of the old Adam or the ungenerate humanity to do this. Rather, it is only after the gracious activity of God upon their unregenerate heart that we come to realize our fallen nature and turn back to God in repentance and confession. Here, the commentator Thronvit says that we are too weak. We are too evil. We are too fallen to recognize our own sin. And we can't confess our sin unless God initiates his goodness onto us. Unless God pours out who he is and his love generously onto us, we cannot turn from our sins. We are not worthy to seek his forgiveness unless we experience God first. Which takes me to my second point, And I promise this part will be a little shorter. Repentance comes after we know God. It is only after the Israelites know who God is, experience his goodness and worship, read the scriptures to 
be told of who this God truly is, they come and they just confess their sins. They see how fallen they are. They natu- repentance naturally flows out when you encounter God. Verse 32, they say, Now therefore our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our God, our princes. You see in this verse, they're confessing their brokenness, their weakness. But notice it happens, and we read all of this, by the way. I read this to show us that repentance happens at the very end after they acknowledge who God is. Only when they see God understand God, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his goodness, they can repent. They can only turn away from their sin when they see that God is so much better. And that's the thing. We can't turn from our sins until we see the goodness of God. Because oftentimes we think our sin is better than our God. But when we see God for truly who he is, what we're holding on to, it's so small. It's so weak compared to who he is. You know, my kids, they're very possessive over their things, like all of us are. But I'm starting, this is human nature, and I see it in my soon-to-be one-year-old Axel, my baby. (laughs) He used to be like, I could take things away, and he's like, well, but lately... This guy is coming up with his own personality. And he would just get into things like Legos and things in the kitchen. And I try to take it away. I was like, oh, no, thank you. But guess what happens when I just yank that thing out of his hands? He cries longer than his brother. I was like, oh, my goodness. Hey, 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 calm down, calm down. It's okay. It's good for you. Let me, let me. I'm just trying to give you, right? That's what happens. But I've learned the skills of being a good parent (laughs) is that how do you take things away from kids? Do you just yank it out of their hand? You can, but they're going to hate you. (laughs) They can be really mad. But the way to avoid a tantrum and getting them upset is offering them something else, something better, something bigger, something greater. So he's like trying to like not like, but what I do is like, hey, Axel, look at this, your brother's toy. He's in daycare. (laughs) You can play with his car. He immediately, he's just like, let's go. And he's just crawling over. Why? Because he saw something better. And this image of my son just letting go of what he had, which is like a little tiny Lego, and just running for his brother. So I think that's what repentance is. Is when you see the goodness of God for who he really is, that you can't help but just drop whatever pitiful thing we're just trying to hold on to and say, I want that. I want God. That's genuine repentance. That's what repentance should look like. R.C. Sproul puts it so eloquently. He says, the idea is that our God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. It is not the whole, that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their will. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ. We run to Christ and we embrace him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. 
They are no longer hearts of stone that were impervious to the commands of God and the invitation of the gospel. God melts the hardness of our hearts and he makes us new creatures. R.C. Sproul is saying that God's love, his goodness, his faithfulness, his character melts even the hardest of all hearts. He transforms stiff-necked people to be worshipers of God. He doesn't force his way. His love just, just transforms. That's what repentance is. Seeing God's goodness and turning from all the things that are not God and saying, God, I want, I want you. You know, in closing, I got into ministry, not kicking and screaming, but God called me into ministry because I grew up in the church. I shared my story a little bit. But growing up in the church, I, I felt like I didn't really know the gospel. I went through the motion of doing church things, but I don't think I really understood the gospel. And as I grew up in this church, and there was a lot of peers around me that I grew up with, oftentimes, like, that's what happens in the youth group. You go in, there's, like, 50 kids, and then next year, it's, like, 40 kids, and then the junior year is, like, 10 kids. Senior year is, like, three kids. They come back for the party. But I saw this trend of a lot of the friends that I grew up in the church, they left. They left the church. Some of them left the faith, or at least they're not walking with God. And in college, I saw that same trend. And there's different reasons why people leave the church. Maybe they were hurt. Maybe they were, like me, confused. Maybe they think this Christian thing is so hard, they're like discouraged. But I wonder, out of all the kids that left, all the kids, students, people that you know of, that you saw here in the church that walk away, I wonder how many of them really knew God for who he really is. I wonder how many of them really heard the gospel, heard that God loves them. God is faithful to them. Even when they are faithless, God loves them. I wonder how many of them have heard that. Because you know, for me, it wasn't until I met with my mentor that I had those words spoken over my life. And I think about that day, that my mentor, she could have said anything because she's so wise. She could have said, hey, you need to do this. You need to do that. Why would you do this? Why didn't you do that? But if she did that, I don't think I would be here today. But instead, she probably saw the poor choices I made. But instead of judging me and saying, why did you do that? She just spoke the gospel into my life. She just listened. She prayed for me. And she shared about God. And you know what happened along the way? God changed me. God changed my disposition. And I wonder what would it look like if our church started to do that. That we just share the gospel with each other. 
when we meet together in small group, maybe with your coworker, that's really difficult. Maybe with your children when they're disobeying. What if we just, instead of putting more rules and laws that God is not impressed by, by the way, we just share more of him, his truth, his gospel. What if we all talked about God the way my friend Phil Bryan talks about bagels? Oh my gosh, it's so good. By the way, I messaged him. I was like, where is this bagel? <laughs> we want it, don't we? I think we need to make God attractive like that because he is. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time, this day. Lord, I pray if we're going through the motions of spirituality, if we think we know you and we don't, God, at this moment, would you just correct us in your lovingly gentle way, but with truth correct us. Help us to know the gospel and not only know it, but believe it for ourselves and believe it enough to share it with others, to share it with our friends, our CG, our children, our neighbors, and those who have yet to hear that we will talk about you who is good, who is faithful. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and even to be here, God, it is a gift. Now give us strength to just know more of you and talk about you everywhere we go. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus.